Hello and welcome to How Did You Manage That? The return of the podcast, which is all about the stories of the people behind some of the biggest artists on the planet. If you're familiar, welcome back. If this is the first time we are meeting your ears, thank you. And please do subscribe if this is your first time. My name is Ali McRae. I'm Sophie Pallock. How are you doing, Sophie? It's been like, it's been almost a year since our last episode. I know, and I'm quite proud of the fact that in the whole time that we've recorded this series so far due to obviously the current climate we haven't actually met in person have we we've been doing this all remotely we have not we had a wee coffee in like january yeah must have been so yeah like i said hey if you've never been with us before welcome back if you are a regular um if you are a regular you'll know what we do is sit down and have amazing conversations with i guess some of the most innovative managers currently operating in the music business and i guess we thought with the entire clusterfuck that 2020 has become for so many, not just in music, uh, that in the interests of progress and a bit of positivity and collaboration that we're seeing going on in the music industry, we thought it would be really good to, to restart these conversations, speak to a load of brilliant managers and find out how they're coping, how they're adapting, how you know some of them are facing real economical hardship and just working out how people are, are trying to find a way through this insane year. And also, let's not forget to mention our amazing partners, the MMF. We've championed them through the whole of the first series and they are back helping us out with the second series. They are the Music Managers Forum, for those of you that don't know who they are. The website is the MMF.net. If you're a music manager, whether you're established, whether you're just starting out, whether you're interested in music management, they are an incredible resource for everything to do with learning how to be the best type of manager you can be, especially considering the the times that we're in right now so please check them out oh and as a small plug i've actually just received it i'm just doing this off the the top of my head nobody has asked me to do this but the mmf have just uh, released the third edition of their book in partnership with chris cook from cmu which is called dissecting the digital dollar which if you are maybe spending a lot more time inside and want to really get your head around the intricacies of how to make money through the music industry through publishing and streaming that is a book you need to get Definitely. And it's really, really interesting just to say, because I've started reading it as well, Ali, just to see how the sort of the finances are broken down of what really comes. How much is a stream worth? How much is it if you're a publisher, if you are an artist? How much money can you make off all the different different ways out there? So, yeah, definitely check it out. Super interesting read if you're a little bit of a a data geek, maybe like me. Yeah, it's written by a guy called Chris Cook, who co-runs the CMU, and he is the master of explaining incredibly complicated things in a very... Um, Anyway, on to this episode. We are restarting with a bit of a bang. We have got a massive manager. His name is Ben Mosin. He is one half of TAP Management. We do actually hear from the other half of TAP Management in this episode too. Um, More than that in a minute. But we spoke to Ben because he manages a huge array of artists, but maybe most famously, Dua Lipa and Lana Del Rey. So, when we recorded this back in June, Dua had just dropped her second album. 
I think she must have been the one of the first big international stars to kind of put an album out in in this sort of corona madness that we're going on. And we chat uh-huh. a lot to Ben in the podcast about, you know, how she got around that, how she did the promo and things. Also, you might learn in this podcast that I'm a little bit of a Lana Del Rey stan. So there's quite stan. a lot of questions about Lana and how her career started and how they did, you know, had an incredible job. Ben's relationship with her and how he has worked with her and developed her into the incredible artist that you know she is today how they met is an incredible story as well i really love that so stay tuned for that and the other thing we've got in this episode which is which is new for the podcast we have brought on board and started working with an organization called small green shoots who we absolutely love um, we spoke to them at the Music Managers uh, Award in 2018 when Natalie, who runs Small Green Shoots, won an award. And Small Green Shoots is an amazing enterprise which gives opportunities to young people breaking into music and the creative industries and they get a lot of support from different music companies. Um, so we thought we'd ask them each week to, to, to get one of their shoots to tip us on the new music that they are absolutely loving right now. So each episode of the podcast, you'll be hearing from another one in the small green shoots. So look out for that halfway through the episode. So without further ado, here is Ben Mawson. So we are here with Ben Mawson, CEO of Tap Music Management, manages some incredible artists, including obviously the amazing Dua Lipa, Lana Del Rey, Ellie Golding, Hayley Steinfeld, Dermot Kennedy. There's such a long list. I feel like if I went through it, I'd still be here 40 minutes later, but you have an incredible roster. Um, how are you doing today, Ben? You good? Um, I'm, I'm good, yeah. A bit tired, but I'm good. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, so I think one of the things we wanted to dive into first was Dua and the fact that she had to release an album during lockdown. How was that for her? I mean, obviously she got a number one album. That's incredible. But how did you, as a management agency, adapt to knowing that all of a sudden lockdown had happened and you had to be on release week with everything going on? Um, well, we, we initially... Um, we're talking about moving the release date. We just felt that um, it maybe wasn't the right time with everything that was happening and that shops closing and the general mood of the country, it might not be the best time to be releasing an album. Um, And we actually started the process of getting a new date and talking about it. But having had conversations with Dua, she and well we together but it was mostly coming from her decided that actually um you know the the the, the album she'd made was an upbeat happy album and she felt like that maybe it was something that would be a positive rather than a negative um and that we should just try and adapt and um and move quickly and mobilize and um and i think within a, within about 24 hours of that it's good that we'd made that decision because the album had leaked. Um, I mean, we're always used to albums leaking because they they um, they get to the warehouses and and inevitably mm. um, a physical copy ends up online, um, and it doesn't really reach the masses. It tends to reach the hardcore fan, you know those those um, hardcore internet fans. Um, uh, so. It's, it wasn't a huge problem, probably. But anyway, we decided to move it. And in fact, we decided to move it a week early and just go for it. <clears throat> and um, um, 
Yeah, I mean, we've just got a very strong team here. We've got a team uh, both in America and in the, in the UK, two brilliant marketing people that support what the label did and everyone just moved very quickly um, to adjust the plan. And um, it's all turned out, it's all turned out great, but it wasn't without it, you know, it wasn't, it, it was definitely um, nerve wracking. And um, I was, you know, I was, Dua was upset and worried because she'd spent so long working on this album and it meant so much to her personally. And it was kind of spoiled by the, by the by COVID nineteen or had the but in the end it's all it's all worked out very well. Obviously we've we've I think she's sold well she's sold considerably more than a million albums already. Wow. And um, we've had we had three three um singles in the top ten at one point. I think it was the first time since I think it's Vera Lynn. Someone in a late uh, I think it was a, a female British female <laughs> in the fifties. Um First time since then, 50, 52 or 56. I can't remember that we, there was been a British female with three singles in the top 10. So all's turned out, all's turned out well. Nice one. And, and we've got a long road to go with singles on the album. Mm-hmm. How, because um, obviously a lot of the creative was done up front, you know, before, ahead of time. How did you and, and, and you as well pivot with doing that creativity, you know, like, in, in bedrooms and homes, how did you deal with that? With the performances for different media requests and stuff. Doer is Doer's very um, Doer's very brave and Doer's very much up for anything um, within reason. Um, Doer's very competitive uh, in a good way, as <laughs> am I, and very driven. And um, you know, she she was upset, but she quickly was like, "Right, let's do this. How are we going to do it?" And um, again. You know, I referenced the team. There's an, you know, there's we got a guy called Pete Abbott, who's um, a production manager, and a guy called Will Bauman, who's a MD. They're very smart and um, and worked with her on. You know, she was like, like if I'm going to be, obviously, it was a pretty shocking um, proposition, doing TV performances from home with no one mm-hmm. from any of on any level of tech at your house. And, um, <laughs> You know, no hair and makeup that you couldn't, you know, used to doing other people doing hair and makeup. Doesn't sound like a big deal to, to us, maybe. Course, but yeah. when, when you're used to doing, you suddenly got a TV, a huge um, international TV, and you, all those things are now you're having to do yourself. Um, um, you know, she, but she was brave and she was, she yeah, bold and um, great support team. And one one thing we made sure was that we didn't say yes to too many things. We mm. we we kept we you know less is more and made sure that the things we did do we did really really well. So mm-hmm. the James Corden one um, was you know fantastic and went viral. And um, these days it doesn't really matter which country you're doing the TV and obviously if it, it, it's all on the internet. So. Mm. Um, the power of doing a few and we made sure each each one was different as well so we were there, there was a you know i think that was quite quickly people got fed up with online you know these i'm going live on instagram and they, it quite quickly got um, yeah. it quite quickly got boring and repetitive but i think one of the things we we tried to make sure was that each time it was a bit different from the last one and um you know Dua was very much part of make of of, of that creative process and and ideas yeah i think she she's probably the the artist that i think has just lent herself so brilliantly to adapting to it 
when I watched that James Corden one and I think there were there were a couple of others she did and obviously she was part of the big BBC thing with Dave Grohl I think she she looked very natural in the in the in the space and I know that's probably her as a performer but I've seen a few insta lives with artists where they obviously aren't very much enjoying it it just seems like she yeah she seemed to embrace it and and it just seemed to be fantastic yeah, well, she is very natural. She's one thing. She's 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 very personable. She's very um, she's very warm, and um, it comes across, I think. And uh, in a way, it played to her strengths because you know when when you when he when when every, all the the glamour is stripped bare, and she's there at home, just you know speaking to people. She's you know you see what a lovely person she is, and mm-hmm. I think she did that. She did that Instagram live where she talked about the dilemma um and her decision to put the album out and she came across really well and um um and natural and very human and i think that's that's um why she's connected with so many um young girls and boys and people generally part part of her i think i saw a quote um talking about the release as well from yourself that was talking about okay she's obviously not coming from a stand and start you had that really huge base to start from for a second album campaign albeit totally different but how has the approach been with other tap artists who are maybe a little more sort of unknown or or, or more emerging because obviously it's one thing to just go for it if you're Dua Lipa but if you're a little bit further down the chain Um, how do some of the other acts adapt well it's hard you know in in you know the world has kind of stalled hasn't it in in a lot of ways um and a lot of businesses have, have had to just mm-hmm. uh freeze in time and um um i wouldn't say that any of our artists have done that but you obviously just got a switch to to to, to online um and everything's got to um happen you've got to try and mm-hmm. be as active and interesting as you can on social media um you know, our artists are very bored of us repeating the TikTok thing, but TikTok is um, <laughs> you know, ever more important. Um, and um, you know, we're even about we're about to launch a new artist, which is a which is an um, which is a you know challenging proposition. Um, but uh, the, you know, with, as as lockdown is easing, um, hopefully we'll be able to shoot videos soon. I think in France they're now shooting. Um, they're doing photographic shoots and, and some video shoots. Mm. And I think it'll be the same here in the next couple of weeks. So, um, yeah, it's challenging. I mean, I think the advice has just been to keep, you know, keep up as much activity as possible online. Um, don't overdo it though. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it's not going to go on forever. So we'll, um, Yeah. How have you been sort of working with your artists and I suppose something we try and touch on quite a lot in the podcast is is their mental health, I suppose, because, you know, some you're in lockdown, you're not being able to go and do the things they need to do. They can't necessarily get to the studio and make the music that they want to make. How are you sort of checking in on them, supporting them, making sure that, you know, you as a management company have a duty of care to people that an artist that might be finding this process quite difficult? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, we don't, one thing we don't do is, is force our artists to do anything, obviously. Um, even if it were possible, it would be counterproductive. And I think we try, all of them are very different with their personalities and what they can handle and what they can't handle. And some of them have, 
uh, higher degrees of sensitivity than others. And um, Lana's, you know, Lana's um, personal feeling was that she wanted to just, you know, hibernate a bit and just, you know, and mm. and um, and uh, she's she's occasionally posted, but she's been relatively absent until recently just so it's really about supporting the individual and who you know they're all they're all different um they're all, all the artists are different and um some of them have coped with it better than others but um yeah it's our job to support them um and to you know if they don't want to do something we it's it as i say it's like um you know we can we can stress the benefits or the reasons we always explain the reasons um because often it's like why am i doing this bit of promo and it's like well this is why and um and if they don't want to do it we don't it's not it doesn't make sense to be pushing them um but we we've got strong um you know connections with all of our artists i think we you know obviously there's a lot there's various various managers and every you know we, we work across different artists but i think it's important as a manager to have that um, personal connection and hopefully friendship. And it, it is friendship, mm. I think, for, for, for all of us um, with the artists, so, which makes work a lot easier. I think you mentioned Lana there, and I'm going to segue into like a, a bit of a personal Lana question because I'm a bit of a Lana stan, so I'm going to go for it. But um, I was doing a bit of research into when video games came out. And what was really interesting was when video games came out, the chart at that time was full of really like LMFAO, Guetta. It was really quite a dancey, heavy, poppy music sphere that that was happening in the world and then video games dropped and it was so different to anything that was currently really doing anything at the time and I always wondered where that decision came to to put that out was there ever anything with the label where they were like no this song isn't isn't right you know look at what's going on at the moment in in the music world or or it's, um, yeah, it's a really interesting time that you put it out. And I think in a way she paved the way for those, you know, those Billie Eilishes, those Lords, that sort of sad pop, I suppose people do call it now. And I just yeah, always look back. The, the, um, the truth is, is that we'd played video games to every major label that she'd met and all of them had sort of smiled and said, you know, that's a nice, uh, that's a nice <laughs> album track or B-side. Um, and... <laughs> I have to say, neither me, neither me nor Ed thought it was uh, as a, a, a as big a hit. Um, I mean, look, it was the first thing she put out, so mm. there was we had to hope, we we thought it was strong. We thought it was very. Um, it, it had an it helped define her identity beautifully, and it had a video made by her, which you know she made. She wrote the song, she made the video, she edited the video. There was there was. Um, it was a uh, you know Justin Parker wrote the song with her, but it was you know beyond that she she you know she she did everything. So, it, um, um, and it I think it did um, it was very out of place musically, and we didn't intend it to be a radio hit. Uh, well, I say we didn't intend it to be a radio hit. You you never know, but but it, it, I think it did change the face of radio at the time. Mm. A lot of it. It was quite dubstep heavy and it was very, every, it was always, I remember with the producers that we had put everyone with, we were always trying to, and there was a natural, I think someone called it the gang, uh, the gangster Nancy Sinatra, which she didn't, <laughs> she 
didn't really like, but I think that was a hip. That was a big hip hop influence in her look and her, her mm. style. And I think at the time, radio was very beats driven, um, and it, beats were important. And of course, video games barely has a doesn't have a drum in it until the last few seconds. And I think for that to get become a radio hit mm. on Radio One, I think David. I remember David Joseph saying at the time that. It was just incredible that this song with no drums had gotten the gone so far mm. uh, at radio. So, yeah, it definitely stood out um, in that moment. But then she she stands out generally. I think she's just pretty unique and incredible an artist, and um, she's carried on doing that and surprising people with direction changes and um, and always resolutely <laughs> doing it her own way. <clears throat> she seems to be an artist that has a particular type of fan as well. She's Her fans seem to be like next level. And I'll tell you the reason for this is because many years ago, I was working for a producer manager called Hannah Joseph. I was assisting her and she looked her. after a writer called Crispin Hunt. And Crispin, I think, worked with Lana early days. And I always remember every week I would get an email from somebody claiming to be you or claiming to be Lana's assistant, oh, wanting to send over Crispin's tracks. And I would be like... Now, still, unfortunately, yeah. we have people posing as, we have people posing, posing wow. as me and Ed. Um, I've had it this week. Um, uh, and there's a there's a big problem with it, actually. And, and um, there's a... Yeah, Lana's fans are something. I mean, I mean, Dua's getting it a little bit now too. Mm. Um, Ellie, Ellie has it too. All big artists have have leaked, but there's um, there's a there's a mm -hmm. yeah, we've had a big problem with that. And um, in fact, we've had people uh, this week. It's happened. We've had someone. We've constantly having to take as many of the tap management um, domains as possible because they they, they get mm, one. Yeah, of course. And. Um, uh, pose as us and write to they write to people we don't even know how they know that historically Lana did a session with them Jesus. Um, and um, a lot of the time the file the producers don't think anything of it and send them over but we've had to um, yeah it's a, it's a constant problem having said that we haven't had it they, they're never they're never on top of the the latest material it's normally historic mm. um, demos so I keep saying to Lana, we should just we should make an album of the, the hacks demos. I mean, it <laughs> probably about eighty or a hundred of them that have been put out. Um, and um, yeah, fans are you know they. I mean, there's a market for them. There's a, on the on some form of the web. I don't know how just how dark that. Bit <laughs> there's, there's on these um, fan private fan sites. They're they're exchanging them, and some individuals are trying to sell them. So. Yeah, it's a funny one because it, it comes out of a, a love for Lana, but it's um, sometimes it's not it, it's not done in very attractive ways. <laughs> hey guys, hope you're enjoying this episode. But before we get back to more amazing stories, wisdom from Ben Mawson, including how he went from being a lawyer to one of the most successful music managers today. And we'll also hear from Tap's other director, Ed. We just wanted to bring your attention to a quick new thing we are doing. 
We have decided to team up with an excellent startup called Small Green Shoots. They are a company delivering music projects and opportunities to young creatives and emerging artists in London. Their team is made up entirely of amazing, young, enthusiastic, totally on it, future music professionals. So we thought we'd give them a chance to let our listeners know what music they're listening to on each episode of the podcast. And who knows, you might just find your next favourite act. So they have kindly agreed to give us a new musical tip from their office stereo each week. So, over to this week's amazing Small Green Shoot tipster, it's Adora. Hey, I'm Adora and I work at Small Green Shoot as a project assistant. I think everybody should be tuning into Victoria Renee's new release right now. It's called Experience and ever since it dropped, it's been on loop for me. The fact that Khalid features on it makes it 10 times better, he takes it to the next level and if you couldn't tell, SG Lewis was on the production too and you know he never disappoints. I'd say it's the upbeat tempo that actually pulled me in because the first five seconds of the track, I couldn't help but dance. It was an instant reaction. The 80s nostalgic vibe is the one filling up with the mice. Big love and thanks to Adora and the whole Small Green Shoots team. Go and hit up their website to find out more about what they do and how they are ushering in the next generation of music industry talent while making some excellent things happen in the process. Right. Back to the conversation with the bold Ben Mawson from Tap Management. So, am I right in thinking that you met her when you were working as a lawyer? Is that correct? When you uh, met yes, Lana? I was. I was um, a music lawyer at SSB, and um, I went to CMJ in two thousand and nine, October two thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. One of my clients was a female rapper singer from New York called Princess Superstar. And um, mm-hmm. she had a had a big hit called "Bad Babysitter." I remember I, that. I even remember the video about having yeah. a bad. It's got my boyfriend in the shower. That's the lyric, right? Yeah, Sweet cheese. <laughs> Huge tune. Yeah. Huge tune. She she's at least um, I think she must be a few years older than me, and she's certainly many years older mm-hmm. than Lana. But they they'd met somehow in in New York, and Lana was in her early twenties, and she just said to me. And while you're in New York, you do me a favor and just come to see my friend's gig because, you know, I just want to show her some support. And it was a little pub, um, and uh, and I went as a favor. And there she was, um, you know, diet, you know, bleached blonde hair, and she had this backing band of guys in their sixties. Um, it was kind of strange <laughs> set up. Yeah, and I, I remember there being. I remember. Quite weirdly, there being this guy at the front, and um, he came backstage afterwards, and he was he was from Playboy magazine, and trying to get her to do a do a uh, do some and then do, do like a, some kind of magazine shoot. And um, I remember thinking, God, this is kind of the whole thing's kind of a bit a bit strange. But the music was she was amazing. She sung beautifully. She was like she looked like a film star, yeah. and like a kind of fifties. Mm-hmm. It was kind of fifties Hollywood film star. And there was this kind of jazz. The music was kind of film soundtracky, had a kind of heavy jazz element. Um, but she was so charismatic and and um, captivating. Um, I just thought, you know, I think at that point it was wasn't like oh she could be a superstar. It was more like just really think she's great. I think I'm going to try and help her. so I met her <laughs> the next day. Um, at the hotel I was staying at, and just she just said, "Look, I'm in this record deal, and it's an indie, and you know they've they've meant well, but it's you know it's 
it's not really a proper label. It's kind of a project of this um, former songwriter, mm-hmm. and it's you know it's not it's not gone that well. And um, I'd like to get out the deal if I can. And so I just tried to get her out the deal. Well, I did. I got her out the deal, and then um, she kept sending me. Got back to London. She kept sending me the new songs, and she sent me a video she'd made for a song called Diet Mountain Dew, which ended up on mm-hmm. um, her album. And it was a homemade video, and I, when I saw that, I was like, "She's just she's a, she's as good yeah. a video editor as she is a songwriter." And, and <laughs> it, I, I thought she must have had someone make the video for them. I was like, "Who, you know, who who could have possibly made this amazing video?" And she said, "Oh, I just made it on my laptop." And she'd stolen loads of footage off um, off um, YouTube um, and just Brilliant. cut it together and filmed herself off her off her MacBook and. So at that point, I was like, "Hang on a minute, this is this is pretty damn." And then I started showing it to A and R's, and at that point, I was, you know, showing it to young A and R's, and there was a, um, a guy <laughs> called Scott Jason who's now at Columbia, who was very young then, would have been in his like early twenties, and he played it to Nick Shamansky, and Nick Shamansky at Polydor. This was Poly, was it Polydor? I think it must. Yeah, it was Polydor, and they um, they paid for her to come to London, and. Um, Nothing came of it though, like except that she came to London, and I started putting her into sessions with writers and producers, and um, uh, and what followed from there was lots of trips to London, which I actually ended up paying for because the label, you know, they they met her and they were like, you know, this is great, but they didn't they didn't follow up, and then we had like a year and a half of her coming back and forth. She spent a lot of many months. She slept on my sofa. She slept on a friend of mine's sofa. She was just like you know, doing anything, everything she did to stay in London and keep writing and wrote with a whole range of different people. And it, it went, you know, very pop at one point and then it went like back film soundtrack. And then she she yeah. hit, hit up on video games and I think she found her direction. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that was 2009 met her. And then 2011 was the record deal. And I think, um, it's funny because it, we came full circle. We met loads of labels and they all said no and they all heard video games and she ended up eventually signing to Polydor. Uh, <laughs> um, and I have joked with Ferdy quite a lot that, you know, he, he um, you know, because we, we ended up putting out video games ourselves independently because no labels were interested. And then yeah. in those days, it was all about Radio 1. It is, a, Radio One still important, but it was even more important back then and, Brian Cotton oh, played yeah. it on a on the breakfast show, and then every all the labels came rushing in, and um, all the labels who'd heard video games many times at all these meetings, and yeah, signed and and everything that 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 was the start, and that was it. Um, what I was going to ask was that we got a lot of people listening to podcasts they're obviously young artists or young managers with a young artist and they're all just like right which way am I going to go what's my expertise going to be in a different type of management and obviously aside from the obvious of being a lawyer transitioning into management the contract side you've got that down where else do you think it helped you that kind of legal background I don't know it's funny because I I get asked a lot at seminars or um, different Mm -hmm. things as to you know what you know what is it that um what can you recommend or what other skills or, and you know the legal background's helpful for arguing with people over contracts but it's not <laughs> make a good manager um oh it mm-hmm. definitely is an asset that knowledge or ability 
I have to say, I don't really know. I really honestly can't pinpoint one. Th- well, I don't. I don't I, there's so many different sorts of managers. I think there's um, managers with lots of different strengths. I don't think there's one thing you can pinpoint. I, all I can certainly pinpoint is is you've got to have some kind of good ear for spotting the right thing, um, and you're never going to get it right every time. But you got to get it right sometimes because if you're mm-hmm. managing something, however skilled you are, if you're managing the wrong thing. It's not going to go anywhere. You've got to have a. You've got to have some kind of ear for spotting talent, and I think, and and it, you know, it, yeah, um, and then I think you've got to have a lot of drive, commitment, passion, and determination because I think, um, everything else you can kind of learn as you go. I mean, I, 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 and then I guess the the one, the thing that I did right was to recognize that I was a lawyer. I mean, I, I, can't, I had a very musical childhood and background, so I kind of got, got, got it on the music front. I think the A&Rs didn't, found it a bit weird that this lawyer was like always tipping people on stuff that, you know, like, you know, what's mm-hmm. the you know, lawyer know about music? But I did have a musical background despite being a lawyer. So I guess I had some kind of ear, but my, I think really why clever move by me was recognizing that I, didn't have a lot of experience on in, as a manager in certain on you know, like managing a major label. The, the pitfalls of, a, of being signed to a major are just you know it's like a, we could talk for hours about that. And, um, <laughs> so yep. you know bringing in Ed was a really big was a really clever move because Ed was a different personality from me, came from a different background, like skill set wise, um, and had a lot mm-hmm. of gaps, filled a lot of gaps in in my knowledge. So. I think generally speaking with business, I think sometimes it's as important to recognize your own weaknesses and find good people to fill those. Not You don't have to, have to do everything. Definitely. You just need to find people who do it well. <laughs> so, yeah, so, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't, I, yeah. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. When I, like when I was in my early twenties, I was working at Radio One on the introducing side, and you know my job was to go and know everything going on. I remember it was just the first couple of months of that. I started going down to London from Glasgow, meeting a bunch of A and R's, meeting a bunch of lawyers, and that was when the penny dropped. That okay, radio DJs are on it, and they know, but there's this whole other layer right up to lawyers, which I would say would know it right. way before anyone I, else, probably around that was, time. And it yeah, totally explaining hit me. to people that I it was a. Um, it, it's a weird thing, isn't it? That the, the, on the artist front, music yeah. lawyers are, are, are often the first people on stuff. Music mm-hmm. lawyers, agents, promoters, uh, and the A and Rs just uh, <laughs> take people out for drinks. No, I'm joking, but it's like, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of very good scouts. But I think that for me, that was what it was a lot about. It was about getting out there, going out, and having a network of people. Um, mm-hmm. um, it was MySpace in those days. It was just like trawling MySpace. And I, I would just make friends with as many scouts as possible and get sent as many tips. And then, of course, you got to try and spot mm-hmm. the good ones. There was a few things that I, you know, I was very, the, the, one of the ones which I was, which I can't remember who sent it to me, but I remember hearing Licky Lee for the first time on MySpace. And I, mm. yeah. and I grabbed Sarah Stennett and was like, we got to fly to Sweden immediately. And, um, to, and she, of course, Sarah wanted to manage her. I just wanted to be a lawyer, and neither of us got the job. But um, but it was um, that was one that I kind of was the first person I told all the A and R's about it, and so and I, that was one that I sort of I slightly sort of made my name as a as a lawyer who was a, a bit on it. Um, 
And then there was a yeah. band called White Lies who everyone wanted to find. Oh, oh yeah. God, yeah. Um, and um uh but yeah, it's funny, it's still the way, isn't it? Like uh, the music lawyers are some of the people that mm-hmm. are most on it. I always remember once being on a flight to South by Southwest and it was just full of lawyers. There was no A&Rs on the plane. And I thought, oh, God, this they are the new A&Rs now because the lawyers were always there first, always. It was really interesting. Yeah, and the A&Rs like to hear that, but it's partly, yeah. it's partly true. So obviously TAP has a label now. Was that always the mission when you started the company? And was the label put in place so you could just put out the records and support the artists you love and not have to go through that process of going through a distributor or trying to sign to a major or get an indie deal? What was the thought behind you starting TAP Records? Um, well, we didn't actually, we, we'd, we'd repeatedly rejected um, offers to have a label because we, you know, we saw labels as the other side. And um, we also thought that um, the flex, you know, we wanted real flexibility. And the reason why we did, did it in the end was because um, we got that flexibility offered to us in the sense that we got, you know, we you know, we've always believed in developing artists outside of the major label system because once you're in it, there's a lot of pressure on you and um, you need to be up. Ideally, you want to be up and running and rolling when you sign and that gives you the best chance of success as as, it, as with Lana. She had that momentum from video games. So we didn't want to be doing a thing where we would just sign um an, art, an artist to our label. We wanted to be able to develop outside the system and then build it to a certain point and then choose the point at which we upstreamed. And not only, and, and we were given that freedom. So we had a fund with which to develop artists and do what we did as managers. And then at the time when we thought was right and there was enough traction and it's, whether it's amount of monthly listeners on Spotify or whatever it is, there's a moment where you're like, right, we're ready now and to get into the bigger system. And so we, we were offered that structure. And secondly, a lot of label deals that are offered to managers are with a single label. So they're with an island or the, you know, mm-hmm. Polydor or with a out of America, but that's limiting in itself because um, you've obviously, you might want to sign something that nece- doesn't necessarily fit on a particular label. Whereas the deal that we've got is flexible and we can mix and match within the universal system, which has been, which has been great. So we can pick, we can pick unusual combinations that, that work best for the particular artist. And when you're picking those combinations, is it important for you to pick a label that doesn't have an artist like that on them? So you're not basically competing directly or is it more important to have a label that has artists like that? So understands those artists and where they can best be placed to, you know, become, you know, career artists. Um, well, or is it more about the team? Like, you know, the A&R, you know, the pluggers, you know, that's a good team. Ultimately the artist, uh, the ultimate artist um, is, a, is a large part of that decision-making process because they've got to really like the people mm-hmm. they're going to be working with. But, um, yeah, it's definitely a consideration signing to a label. If you do a particular thing where there's six other artists doing something similar, maybe it's just solo females, maybe it's solo females in your particular lane. Certain labels in the UK have got a lot of solo females. Others have got less. There's an argument either way, isn't there? You could say, well, they've got a load of solo females because they're good at it. Or you could say signing there is going to... Um, be harder to break through because they they're going to be they got their hands full of similar acts so it's certainly a consideration but 
yeah, a lot of factors go into that. Uh, last thing we wanted to ask about was um, obviously tap look after Dermot Kennedy, and you touched on the, the the radio influence as well. Now he was an artist that correct me if I'm wrong. UK radio definitely took a while to to catch up on. Um, how was the build with him? And was it mostly Spotify led? Or? Ed's right next to me, and I think Ed Ed's the main manager on Dermot, <laughs> so I'm going to call him over to him. <laughs> <laughs> you might need to repeat it because he's been te- texting someone. Don't worry, this isn't a, a film. Podcast. Hi, Ed. <laughs> How are you doing? Hi. But I was just asking there quickly about Dermot, and we've been chatting through the different ways things have gone with Lana and and, yeah. and Dua. And Ben mentioned that obviously, you know, radio's not as influential as it used to be. But Dermot, it took a while before UK radio kind of picked up yeah. on Dermot and and probably across Europe. How was that build with him coming from? I would imagine quite a good background in Ireland. Um, well, it was actually kind of the well, we intentionally <laughs> didn't do anything in Ireland. We basically kept him away from Ireland because right. Ireland, like any small country, moves so fast, mm. and you can go from like nothing to arenas very very quickly, and so. Mm-hmm. You know, and for him, it was so important to be global and not be an Irish artist trying to export out. So it was always about kind of doing the opposite of everything you were supposed to. And also as a, you know, a male singer-songwriter, you need to focus on what's your point of difference rather than like playing mm-hmm. to the obvious. So for him, you know, hip-hop was always such a big influence on him sort of lyrically, stylistically in a certain way even though fundamentally mm-hmm. he's a songwriter. So we, it was all about really building before pushing really hard at radio where it would be like, oh, here's the next singer song, male singer-songwriter on the track. You know, it's like yeah. build a story around him. And he was, he's amazing live. So, you know, you had the streaming story, which was global. He had this natural, like, reactivity that you couldn't, you know, it's one of those things that you, you can't really fabricate. Like, you know, he... When we put on his yeah. first show when we after we met him in London, we didn't really know who was going to come or who they were going to be, and we kind of thought, well, we had an idea what it might be, and then it was completely not that. It was actually loads of like young girls who were crying, wanted to get his yeah. autograph. You know what I mean? That's <laughs> what we thought it was going to be. Um, so uh-huh. we that gave us a kind of, and it's followed that path really. It's been a lot of like you know obsessed girls to a certain point, but also a lot of like mm-hmm. really sporty guys too and so we knew that you know mainstream radio and radio one was really going to be where he should land but we we needed to build the right and because he doesn't have the leg up of being british so he doesn't get the like all the looks Mm -hmm. in and the entry point Mm -hmm. the only story really is that they can't deny it yeah american artist (laughs) and you're not british you you kind of fall in between and so the only way you can really get the support is by being just undeniable so we just didn't press it too hard and did lots of stuff to build identity and kept touring and he you know obviously it was he built a massive touring story and a massive global story and you know chris price went from being like you know not sure early on to being totally sold six months later based on yeah how it was his trajectory was and what reaction he would get and now it's you know He's been pretty embedded. So, um, you know, we always saw him as like a, you know, um, as a sort of, you know, mainstream crossover artist. And that, you know, he's still on that journey to a certain degree. But it's definitely, if we'd gone with Ireland 
at the pace Ireland go. I mean, he's now moving up to stadiums in Ireland when he's like, you know, we can't really do anything there until the last like couple of months. Um, and you know, his his album was what number one there for eight weeks, and he's, he's selling oh, it's of the decade or something, like domestically. So, yeah. and that's all without trying too hard. So it was all really yeah. about going where you can't, where, where you can't do what, you know, the first session we did was um, not your obvious singer-songwriter session. It was <coughs> like this colours session. So it was doing something nice. that showed where his influence was rather than going, oh, well, we could do a mahogany session or one of those more traditional singer-songwriter things. We just avoided mm. all that constantly, which yeah. meant it took also longer to like get it moving, but just being, had a, conviction of the message of what he was about where he was influenced by and then from that building and also for him to find like confidence in you know expressing himself outside of just you know talking about music or whatever and find his confidence online and doing all of that so it's a number of all those things really Mm Amazing. Yeah, nice. No, I produced a thing last year just that went out the same day Outnumbered came out for BBC uh, Scotland. Street, it was a wee session, uh, black and white one outside the Barras. Yeah, the and I remember pitching for that. With the piano out on the... Yeah, yeah that's the one. That was really good. Yeah, we, we loved that. But I, like, I remember pitching for it and just thinking, we're never going to get this. Because, you know, like you said, he didn't do those traditional yeah. sessions. So we got the film crew to kind of come up with a different brief for it. And it was, yeah, yeah. I loved doing that. Guy. But yeah, that, that thing about his audience, when I was telling a few friends who I never speak to about music, I was like, oh, this guy from Ireland, you might have heard him, like obsessed, <laughs> my friend Katie, funny enough, right. Irish, never talks about music, obsessed with the man, obsessed yeah, with the, the global <laughs> Irish, you know, America, America's <laughs> gone the way it's gone for him too as well, like wherever you go, there's always like, whether they're third generation, tenth generation or whatever, like they all turn up, <laughs> um, so yeah, that definitely helped him being Irish globally, sure. Yes. But, um, yeah. I think, too, I don't know if you want to bring Ben back in and you can maybe answer this together, our final question that we wanted to sort of put to you, if he, you could do it, if he is about. Is, um, so I've me, sort of, there you go. <laughs> is Let's two go, minutes. two minutes and we'll cut so it. So it's fair to say that you guys, sorry, is it two minutes going away, coming back? He's there now. Right. Sorry, we've no, got two minutes. <laughs> it's fair to say that you guys have attracted some really big names over to the tap side in the last, you know, couple of years. You've got Ellie Golding now. You've got Haley Steinfeld. What do you think it is about tap that has attracted this talent, and what do you maybe offer or is different to other big management companies out there? Um, I, uh, I think what I would like to. Think what? Well, no, I know what makes us different. We've got a. <laughs> um, I think we've got a better. We've got a, stru- a very strong infrastructure. It's not just me and Ed. We've got lots of people with lots of very, you know, specialist skill sets. We've got um, an amazing marketing team in America, headed up by Wendy Ong, who was head of marketing at Rock Nation, where she looked after Rihanna for years, and then. We've got Hannah Neves in the UK, who was head of marketing Atlantic and worked on Lana originally, and Ella Morn, who came from Virgin, who does marketing. We've got five A&Rs. We've got a specialist tour accountant. We've got five digital people who specialize in social media. You know, we've got, we've got office in Germany, Australia. We, we're thinking about opening one in France. We've got LA office, so we're, we're very global. Um, we've got a lot of different people with a lot of different skill sets. We've got in-house 
brand people. There's going to be an announcement on that imminently. Um, um, so I think I think we offer a lot of services that most managers in the UK, if not all, don't have. Um, uh, globally, there's some some that do, but then and also I think we're not too big. There's some management companies out there that do have him do have um, in-house infrastructure, but are so vast that there's not really a collaborative um, or coherent internal um, setup. And I think we're we're about forty people now. I can't I haven't counted, but it's roughly forty. Um, and um, everyone is very connected and collaborative and helps each other and works across different artists. Um, but that's a good yeah. answer. <laughs> and I guess, you know, just when you meet, you know, with artists, you've got to connect with them. And, and when you meet them and, and align on a plan and, and get on as people. So, so we don't, um, yeah, I would say that's it. I've been <laughs> in your office a few times. I know lovely Erin very well. And, um, it always feels like a really nice collaborative open space. Like anyone could just drop in if they fancied it. And I think that's really important. You go to a few management offices and which shall remain nameless and they do look a bit like call centers and it feels a bit faceless. So I think that's always been sort of from my experience of when I've popped into the office that I think obviously maybe that, that comes across when people are actively coming in to talk yeah, to you cool. guys and, and stuff like Everyone that. Gets very well and, 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 enjoy, and the job is like, it's not a nine to five job. So you have to really, enjoy your work and enjoy who you work with and there's, there's a very social element um to what to, to the office as well um so yeah yeah if a new artist has just turned up for a birthday cake and, uh, <laughs> oh nice probably, uh, <laughs> yeah social a socially we better let you get to it cake, we might need to add as a disclaimer on this podcast yeah <laughs> well that was a pretty killer first episode if i do say so myself ali yeah, it was amazing. Ben has so much wisdom and Ed to share there. And it was just so good to hear how he kind of approaches these challenges that are, you know, attacking the biggest artists and people just emerging right now. And also just interesting how, you know, especially that story about Lana, how nobody really cared. And, you know, she was playing in a band with sort of, as Ben put it, four guys in their 60s when he first saw her in New York in a bar somewhere and uh, you know it takes a while to grow video games a hit like that doesn't just happen and even the fact that even they didn't think video games was the big mm. song and then it just blew up really inspirational chat and great to hear yeah definitely and I think the thing that's really interesting it keeps popping up again and again is I, I don't really know how to say this but so many managers we meet are just such lovely people and so chilled and so zen and so just kind of like you know the fact that Ben said, you know, we didn't even think the video games was necessarily a hit just shows that, you know, he's, he's quite humble. Great. Well, thank you for listening to the episode. Um, big thanks to Ben and Ed at TAP for their time and their insights this week. If you have liked what you've heard and maybe found it useful, the only thing we ask is that you share the podcast with anyone else you know that you think might enjoy it, other managers, aspiring industry people, emerging artists, or, you know, Dua Lipa or Lana Del Rey mega fans like Sophie.
Yeah, that would be amazing. And if you want to shout us out, then all our handles are at Manage That Pod. That's Twitter, that's Instagram. Please give us a shout out. Share your favourite bits from the episode. If you think there's any managers that we should speak to that's got an amazing story to tell and that maybe are doing things a little bit differently and innovating in the music industry, we would love to hear your suggestions and we'll try and get them on the pod. So until next time, see you later. Bye.